Hi everyone, welcome to Crime Science. In this podcast, we aim to explore the science of crime and the practical application of the science for loss prevention and asset protection practitioners as well as other professionals. We would like to thank Bosch for making this episode possible. Use Bosch Camera's onboard intelligent video analytics to quickly locate important recorded incidents or events. Bosch's forensic search saves you time and money by searching through hours or days of video within minutes to find and collect video evidence. Learn more about intelligent video analytics from Bosch in Zones 1-4 through of LPRC's Zones of Influence by visiting Bosch online at BoschSecurity.com. Thank you everybody for joining us for another uh, episode of Crime Science Podcast. Uh, This is the latest on our weekly uh, series of updates and um, uh, I'm sure of course everyone out there knows that uh, you know, breaking news that the first of the coronavirus vaccines were approved by the uh, FDA uh, under emergency use authorization, similar to what we saw in the UK. Um, and I know here in Gainesville at the University of Florida, um, at the Jacksonville UF Health, we received 20,000 doses, of which 4,000 came over today, this morning early, um, to Gainesville to the main uh, UF Health. Um, and uh, as we speak today on the on this Tuesday, tomorrow, uh, UF Health professionals, those most exposed to the virus through their um, the treatment protocols that they administer, uh, will be vaccinated. Um, I saw that the uh, president of UF Health Jacksonville emergency physician doc um, he was the first to get the vaccine yesterday. So UF Health Jacksonville is already administering, um, and the and through communications at UF, um, I've been seeing that we'll get weekly to bi-weekly um, vaccine deliveries until all the healthcare providers that are in the most exposed positions are all, um, have gotten both doses, um, 28 days apart. Um, a lot of anticipation, the FDA is already uh, uh, very favorable on the Moderna vaccine being approved potentially even this week as we speak, maybe as early as Friday, um, and that the uh, vaccine independent committee, the same one actually that voted, I understand, 17 to four with one abstention additionally um, to vote for the emergency use on the Pfizer um, BioNTech uh, we're going to be reviewing or already have the data of course reviewing and uh, voting on whether or not to approve the emergency authorization or at least a recommendation for that on the Moderna. So you know very exciting in both mRNA virus or excuse me vaccinations. Um, so this new technology uh, my understanding is that there are Two or three others that are very, very close, uh, potentially even J&Js. Um, and as we talked about before, there are another 10 uh, other um, in phase three trials vaccines, vaccines and uh, but over 130 vaccines in different preclinical and phase one, two uh, trials as well. Um, and then again, uh, literally 300 plus uh, therapies. So, you know, the good news on that front. Um, so with no further ado, I'm going to go ahead and turn it over to a uh, friend and colleague, Tony D'Onofrio. And uh, so on behalf of the team here at LPRC, I want to thank you for dialing in. Tony, if you want to take it away. Thank you very much, Reed. Uh, and really today is a special day. We have a special guest. It's my pleasure to introduce uh, Leslie Hand, Group Vice President for IDC Retail Insights. As IDC Group VP, Leslie manages the retail research team for IDC research, Retail Insights and conducts research on digital and contactless omni-channel retail technologies. This research is especially relevant today given the threats and opportunities now facing the entire retail ecosystem 
from evolving consumer behaviors. Leslie works with retailers and technology providers on developing best practices and strategies, leveraging IDC quantitative and qualitative data sets. Before joining IDC, she spent 28 years in the retail industry. As an analyst, Leslie has been widely acknowledged as a person that has coined the term omnichannel. So it's my great pleasure to introduce Leslie Hand. Welcome. Thank you so much, Tony, and, and thanks uh, for the invitation today. Uh, it's a pleasure to be here and to, um, you know, offer some thoughts on uh, uh, some of the things that are going on right now in retail and, and uh, our predictions, uh, so to speak. So um, happy to be here. Welcome. So uh, I actually want, I was really intrigued by the Futurescape Top 10 IDC Worldwide Prediction for Retail 2021 that you shared last week in your great webinar. So can you tell us how these predictions came together and the sources for, and the sources for them every year? Sure. So, you know, it's actually quite a big deal at IDC. It's an IDC tradition, if you will, that every year we come up with our top 10 predictions. We publish that in, in a report called a Futurescape. Um, and then we host that webinar you mentioned. Um, but uh, before we get there, we really pull together, um, you know, thoughts across the various parts of the organization, the guys that cover horizontal technologies and then folks like me who cover uh, retail and, you know, industry segments. Um, and I have uh, six peers across the around the world that also lead different uh, programs uh, that cover different things, um, uh, supporting retail technology insights. And uh, so we get together and we brainstorm and we really pull from, you know, our experience, our retail interactions, uh, retail and consumer surveys, various other types of research um, to, to come up with what do we think the top 10 hottest topics are right now? You know, what, what, um, what's going to be meaningful to our audience, uh, which are retailers and also the retail technologists that support them? Um, and uh, so that's what we did, and that's what we do every year. You guys do a great job at it, and I actually look forward to them every year. I actually read them every year, so thank you for those. But let's uh, speak specifically to a few of those top 10. Let's start with number three, uh, which is by 2023, 80% of retailers will offer contactless payments and app-based scan-and-go pay systems in stores, increasing conversion rates by 40%, and customer retention rates by 30%. Can you elaborate on this one? Sure, you know, and, and the impetus to this one really started with uh, some of the data we've been collecting from consumers. And, you know, 38% of consumers in October told us that they still felt more safe or safer when they had contactless options to engage um, with, uh, with retailers. Um, and for some retailers, you know, 20 to 40 percent of consumers uh, may be, you know, leveraging that contactless payments um, option. Um, and, you know, there's been generally an acceleration of self-serve and self-checkout deployments as we go through this. And I kind of think about it as, um, you know, because the consumer wants the convenience and the safety of contactless, 
they've given us permission <laughs> to do something maybe we wanted to do um, for a while. And, uh, and so, so we see a lot more of those rollouts happening. Um, and, you know, the other thing that we surfaced in our um, consumer research was that there's a significant acceleration in mobile shopping and ordering and, you know, like I said, payments. Um, and that's utilizing both advanced payments and contactless options. And the phone, therefore, <clears throat> is becoming um, even more integrated into the shopping journey. Um, and if you'd been to a restaurant in the last several months, you might have encountered a QR-driven menu, right? Um, where you just scanned that QR code and you got the menu um, and you could order then um, with the waitress. And, and all of these factors have kind of set us up to see accelerated app-based scan and pay uh, acceptance. And what I, what I mean by app-based scan and pay, if you think about what Amazon Go does, some of the mobile capabilities that a Walmart or an Ahold, um, Carrefour, Tesco, some of those capabilities that they already have for, for um, um, checkout and, and mobile pay, um, you know, that's, that's kind of what I'm talking about. Um, and, you know, bottom line is the industry needs to radically rethink um, these digital and contactless services and processes um, in order to, you know, create a more safe, a more secure environment for employees and customers. Um, and of course, um, you know, don't forget the consumer thinks this is really convenient now that you've convinced them to try it. <laughs> so, so, uh, so that is a key consideration. Yeah, I actually, I've been a heavy user of exactly all these contactless experience and that totally is, have actually leveraged that uh, the QR codes in restaurants. So that is the new way we seem to be shopping these days. But let's now speak about number six, uh, which is by 2023, following early experiments, retailers will accelerate intelligence capabilities by acquiring AI technology vendors for their own competitive advantage and intelligence, driving 5% to 10% growth. Tell me more about this one. Yeah, so, you know, um, uh, I want to say first and foremost, I am so proud of how retailers have, uh, you know, stepped up to meet every challenge that's been thrown at them uh, in the last, you know, nine months. Um, but um, one thing we learned through the crisis was that um, humans can adapt to any new context. However, it might cost us a lot of money, <laughs> right? Our, opera our operations costs kind of went through the roof. Um, and um, for that reason, you know, we need to look for other ways to scale and respond um, more efficiently to, to new needs. And, um, you know, maybe that's a little bit of a leap, um, but, um, but essentially, uh, you know, we're thinking about how AI can automate more process and more capabilities, how it can drive smarter systems, how it can, you know, it, it basically becomes both foundational, um, but also, uh, you know, specifically delivers, can be embedded in specific capabilities to, to uh, kind of take take uh, technology to a whole new level, um, and um, you know, just like this other 
technology leap consumers have taken, um, given the right motivation as retailers, we're now faced with, well, how are we going to speed adoption of AI? And, you know, we need IT to be more responsive and we need that responsiveness to be more automated. So, um, you know, what, what we believe is that retailers are going to balance, uh, you know, kind of just running everyday business, but then placing targeted bets on the future. Um, and I think of it as very similar to what happened in the early 2000s when, you know, obviously Amazon was on the scene, uh, you know, uh, Google hit the scene and, and um, there was a little bit of a craze around e-commerce adoption. But most of the systems that were adopted in retail weren't really fully transactional systems. The full catalogs weren't loaded. It was like a soft commitment. And then there were a large number of retailers that really didn't commit at all. Um, and so, so um, you know, what we saw in the last five or so years were companies like Walmart acquired Jet.com, you know, probably as much an acquisition of talent as it was of technology. PetSmart acquired Chewy, right? Uh, McDonald's acquired Dynamic Yield. And more recently, we saw Nike acquire Select, which is an AI-driven assortment and fulfillment optimization capability. And Lowe's acquired Boomerang, which was an AI-driven price optimization capability. So with each of these investments, you know, they both um, kind of acquire the latest and greatest in skill, in talent, and capability, um, and that helps them drive to a whole new level um, uh, from a performance perspective. Um, and you know, we see that uh, the performance is typically a five to ten percent improvement in growth. No, Leslie, fully agree with you. I mean, the latest example to me is what Lululemon did with the magic mirror. That's a perfect example of extending from apparel into actually the experience. So that. It's an interesting approach that all these retailers are taking. Are taking. So let me jump to uh, number eight. And number eight is by 2023, 75% of grocery e-commerce orders, will, which will represent 15% of sales, will be picked up at curbside or in-store, driving a 35% increase in investment in on-site or nearby micro-fulfillment centers. Can you tell us more about this one? Yeah, and this, this has everything to do with the ex explosion in digital commerce and kind of the new habits that have been formed through the pandemic. I mean, you know, consumers told us in our surveys that they uh, preferred curbside or delivery. Um, you know, we've seen sales up uh, year over year in uh, grocery and general merchandise. However, traffic count is down. <laughs> and why? Because they're getting picked up curbside. Um, and um, uh, but what this does is once again we've got our consumers learning a new way to shop more conveniently, right? Um, and you know if we have to, um, uh, I, I, the retailer's preference is obviously curbside over over uh, local same day delivery because that costs them more money. <laughs> and you know you want to give the customer an opportunity to come in the store, um, but. Ultimately, what this is going to do is really force retailers into a position where they need to redesign the store and reset their priorities for investment around the store. 
Um, ultimately, they'll need more customer pickup locations. They'll need to improve the way you know inventory is managed real time, and they'll need to improve how and where fulfillment happens. In some cases, you know, we're going to see uh, the growth of micro fulfillment centers, which are alongside the store. In some cases, we'll see like what Walmart has announced in converting a, a distribution center to a pickup location for consumers. Um, and we'll see, you know, lots of uh, varieties of these things happening. And a single retailer may, you know, may deploy several different configurations because of market dynamics. Um, and of course, you know, the cost of real estate comes into play, what they're allowed to do, you know, all of that. So um, ultimately, um, you know, it's just going to be really interesting to see what happens next. But in a way, I think of grocery and general merchandise evolving into flow through centers, right? So, so turns increase, um, and the velocity of goods that can move through the store increase, which means a uh, number of transactions go up, uh, potentially uh, cart sizes go up, um, and all those metrics that, that uh, grocers and general merchants love are improved. No, Leslie, a very good point. I actually had an experience at Best Buy of actually buying online and pick up at store, and, there, and I was lucky enough to get one of the, the designated parking spots, but... It was amazing to watch, especially when it gets busy, a whole bunch of cars with trunks open with consumers with their hands folded, waiting for that pickup to come out. So that's something retailers will have to work on in terms of how they optimize uh, the curbside. Uh, let yes. me switch uh, to another prediction, um, which I know this audience will be interested in, which is number nine. By 2023, the COVID-19 related intersection of safety and security will drive shared retailer funding and a 30% lift in spending across computer vision, biometrics, and enhanced video surveillance. Tell me more about this one. Sure. You know, I kind of consider it uh, the perfect storm for physical and digital safety and security initiatives. You know, I've I spent a long time in retail, and um, I know it can be hard sometimes to get those physical security initiatives uh, funded. Um, and so in any case, um, what what we see happening here is, um, you know, the top the top things that retail or, you know, every time a retailer goes to make any kind of investment, we always have to check to, to the, on the security of the system, right? Um, and uh, it's a part of all our investments around cloud and AI. But now add new pandemic-related retail realities like concerns about safety, masking, social distancing sanitizing things right and we end up with all these new protocols and regulations but we don't necessarily have a way to ensure compliance or proactively identify the problems that may be occurring right so so even though safety and security aren't always the same or you know aren't the same they have common elements um, and that is the need to monitor and control traffic in and out of the store to monitor movement around the store um, and the interactions of customers with each other, with associates, with products, and with store devices and fixtures. So um, essentially what we're saying is, um, you know, 
even when a retailer has already invested in people tracking and loss prevention, uh, surveillance and analytics and security software applications and solutions, biometrics, computer vision, you know, there's there's a need to bring this together. Um, and it may be a, a big leap, but you know, you could even augment with temperature sensing technologies and social density and distancing solutions and contract contact tracing technologies, you know, all sorts of things like that. Um, computer vision is already helping solve fraud problems at checkout or self-checkout where it's applied, but it can also support other use cases in and around the store like slip and fall risk cases, issues, parking lot safety, theft, inventory management. I know you guys have covered this on other podcasts, um, but we think, you know, the addition of things like thermal cameras and recognition um, can can help, you know, identify whether somebody's sick, right? And it can measure body temperature. Or you can possibly alert employees um, who are ill and, and send them home. Um, but you can also extend video surveillance and analytics um, and computer vision uh, to, uh, to more broadly monitor everything that's going on in the store, right? From a merchandising, from a, um, a sales, a safety, et cetera. So that's kind of where we were going. Um, there are many opportunities uh, to find operational efficiencies and and trying to uh, maximize how we utilize these systems that we deploy. Leslie, fully agree with you. I've actually have been seeing this for a while that uh, traditional security technologies are becoming important sensors to do a lot more. So a camera, even a tagging system now becomes smarter with RFID. It's really becoming a new world. So this unification that you're talking about, it's actually desperately needed because I do think these technology can help run a store much more efficiently. Let me uh, close by asking you in terms of uh, COVID-19 and the surreal year that it's caused. How have these predictions been impacted by COVID-19, do you think? What's dramatically different this year, this year versus last? And any thoughts on uh, 2021? So looking back, looking forward, what are your, some of your thoughts? Yeah, you know, um, COVID-19 actually, you know, impacted technology investment quite a lot. It, did, it obviously impacted business. And it has reset um, kind of our um, planning cycles and our investment cycles for uh, and prioritizations um, uh, significantly. Um, through the pandemic, uh, since March, mid-March, we've been surveying retailers every two weeks weeks to kind of get their sentiment about what's changed for them and how it's impacting where they're gonna spend money and what they're gonna do. And um, I can tell you that, um, you know, what they tell us is, this is a big pivot, right? It's probably the biggest pivot we're gonna see in our lives. Um, and the most important things are uh, utilizing data and analytics better becoming more resilient and transforming how we work, right? Um, so the focus on data and analytics will drive better outcomes from business operations, from your products and from uh, those partners that you work with. And um, resilience, which you know could mean a lot of things, um, is really 
all about adaptability, scalability, and getting the value from uh, all those technologies that you invest in. So it's really about focusing on outcomes, but not just for today, for the future. So how do I build systems that are going to sustain me today profitably, um, but also be able to adapt if the environment completely changes, um, you know, next year? Um, maybe we'll have a different crisis. <laughs> yep. You just don't know, and that's the point. <laughs> yeah. So, um, so yeah. So uh, the third one was workplace transformation, and that's uh, you know figuring out how to um, improve workflow, um, but also automate more work so that uh, the things that don't require um, human intelligence uh, can be done by machines. So that's uh, that's uh, that's kind of uh, what we see going on right now. Well, uh, thank you, Leslie. Very enlightening. I urge this audience to look up IDC and actually look up the other six that we didn't cover in uh, this podcast, but really insightful review in terms of what's possible in uh, 2021 with your prediction. Uh, so thank you very much, Leslie, for joining us. Thanks. Appreciate it. Thank you. So let me close my section by actually the Wall Street Journal just uh, today published the 2020 Retail in Review. And I just want to share some of their thoughts in terms of uh, as we end the year in terms of what the Wall Street uh, Journal is telling us. So through the first 10 months, retail sales, excluding gas, auto and food service, are up 6.4%. Oddly enough, the Wall Street Journal said this could turn out to be uh, one of the best years in overall retail sector in 20 years, but more than 27 retails filed for bankruptcy in the first nine months. Before coronavirus, 15% of sales were online, a spike to 20% in April, but as it has settled down to 16% in the last three months. Key trends that the Wall Street Journal set for 2020 that these things uh, are telling us is that, number one, if Americans have money, they will spend it, uh, and they expect uh, Christmas to, and the fourth quarter to be robust. Uh, the season did come early, as we talked about early, uh, earlier in this podcast. 50% of, 52% of consumers actually were shopping prior to Thanksgiving. Number two, the playing field in retail is rapidly changing. Convenience matter more than ever. Enclosed malls will diminish, and this one shocked me. Uh, and their numbers will shrink from 1,800, the Wall Street Journal is saying, down to 200 or 400 sustainable malls. Number three, the brands we love are changing and the standard by which we judge them are evolving. Consumers are starting to consider where and how goods are made. Still don't believe for a minute that people will buy sustainable and politically correct products in lieu of ones that we that are priced affordably. Number four, uh, and actually a lot of what we just talked about, technology continues to change nearly everything about the retail experience, personalization, and the ability to stimulate our interest via data and artificial intelligence will be startling. Retailers will know us, us better than our spouses and our families. That would be interesting. How products are sourced, produced, and distributed will be tracked. The merchant princes of the past is one of my favorite sentences. The merchant princes of the past must become the consumer insights leader and data analysts of tomorrow. Live streaming, which we've also talked about, 
a lot in this uh, podcast in different times, is coming to the U.S. I was actually in the, in the L.A. Times about this this past week. And then finally, in the end, retailers that will win are those that watch their pennies, focus on the customer, and build and sell great products that meet needs and fulfill aspirations. So with that, I'm going to turn it over to Tom. Well, thank you, Tony, and thank you, Leslie. Leslie, I actually uh, followed everything from IDC and just recently wrote an article and cited a lot of things there, so I appreciate you coming on. I'm just going to talk about one thing today, and um, earlier this week, there was a report of a major hack on the U.S. government. Uh, Right now, it's focused on Treasury and Commerce. I I think we'll learn more in the upcoming days, but I'll cover what we know today. Um, First thing to note, and it's a a bit of there's a, a lot of ironicism in, in this whole entire hack and the, the reading. You may have seen this. It was in pretty much every major news publication uh, nationally and even globally. And what it read, what what the headline read in some was the largest uh, state-sponsored attack on the U.S. government in five years. And I think it's important to state that uh, while this is uh, still a lot of unknowns of how big this really is, uh, this does happen. Um, right now it's being... Uh, driven uh, by a Russian-sponsored state attack that isn't necessarily confirmed, although all the data really supports that. And it was heavily focused, again, on the Commerce and the Treasury Department. The information is just becoming publicly available. Um, So I think in the next week or so, we'll learn a lot more. But I want to just go through kind of what we know today and what it means and and, uh, some of the things around it that really make it similar or different than the other Um, attacks that we recently talk about. First and foremost, the reason it caught so much attention is because the Cybersecurity Infrastructure Security Agency uh, issued a mandate on Sunday evening to stop using a product called SolarWinds, and it's the the Orin product immediately to the U.S. government. Um, uh, why why this is a bit of ironic and a challenge is SolarWinds is one of the largest providers of anti-malware uh, protection software. So what they do for a living, the pro- what they provide is supposed to help potentially um, identify this. And they had a massive breach. Um, and one can draw a conclusion, while I don't have any data to support this, other folks that use this um, could be potentially exposed. And I know there are some of our listeners today that do. What we know is the hack began early in March, uh, well, malicious code that snuck in through the SolarWinds monitoring pack, uh, program. And the SolarWinds was designed to monitor networks and for both businesses and governments. This isn't really a consumer uh, software. Uh, the malware uh, uh, affected product mainly associated with SolarWinds, and it gave uh, a very, very high-level hacker, uh, hackers group access to uh, government organizations' computers. Um, it wasn't discovered, you know, uh, until another company found it uh, through a different hack. So uh, right now, what we know is we think this is from March. And while I don't like to report or talk about things without a lot of information here. Um, We don't know actually the magnitude of the breach, what data was obtained or how far it will reach. we talk often about cybersecurity and using good best, you know, good practice, uh, best practices to protect yourself, both from a business and consumer standpoint. This is somewhat alarming with all of the things that occur, and I don't think it's a coincidence that this attack started in March. I think, um, as we talked about, 
uh, back when Tony and, and, and I and Reed got together uh, in, I think it was April, we talked about all of the vulnerabilities that we'd have just from pure distractions and trying to manage uh, the pandemic and the things going on. So while I don't have any data to support that the two are related, um, I'm not a big believer in coincidences that these attacks start around the time that we went through national shutdowns and some real big changes. Um, so, you know, kind of the, the the roundabout here is more to come on this, but as you read about it, um, what this truly kind of goes through is that the best industry practices and software in place still there are still vulnerabilities in our cyber world and we talked a, a little bit today or a lot today about how retailers are um, are becoming more digitally inclined they have to be right the acceleration of digital transformation but as i often say on this as we introduce more digital applications and increase our digital footprint we also uh, increase our attacks vector and surface for cybersecurity and hackers. So while I don't have any great advice on what you could do to do around this, it's just be mindful of uh, some of the risks that will continue to come. And when you take a state-sponsored attack like this, the reality is that um, much like we probably are all who listening draw the conclusion is when you have state sponsors attacks, the very best safeguards and policies uh, and procedures and technology that can be put in place um, are are still vulnerable when you have such a high uh, level of expertise attacking. So not to round it out with bad news, but I, I thought it was important. And um, for that, um, I'm not sure if Reed is here to end it today. I know Reed had to jump off. So I will uh, sign off by saying thank you for listening and we'll talk to you next week. Thanks for listening to the Crime Science Podcast presented by the Loss Prevention Research Council and sponsored by Bosch Security. If you enjoyed today's episode, you can find more crime science episodes and valuable information at lpresearch.org. The content provided in the Crime Science Podcast is for informational purposes only and is not a substitute for legal, financial, or other advice. Views expressed by guests of the Crime Science Podcast are those of the authors and do not reflect the opinions or positions of the Office Prevention Research Council.